0: Name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. In today's readings, we are confronted with two of the more unusual, in some ways, yet also very dramatic passages in the lectionary. The words of Ecclesiastes are pretty stark, such as, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair? What has a man from all the toil and strain with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of pain and his work is a vexation. Even at night his mind does not rest. This also is vanity, a sentiment that takes us right back to the opening lines, which read, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. And if that seems grim, then the words of the gospel are in a manner even starker, if not downright terrifying, when it is said of the foolish rich man, God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Just think about what is being put to us here. First there is the question, do our earthly lives with all their busyness and anxieties have any real meaning at all? And I note that's not asking whether life has meaning qua life, it's asking does your or my individual life have meaning as we are living it? And then the Gospel sharpens the question further by asking, rather more than just about matters of inheritance, even though that is how it's framed, suppose you were told that you will die tomorrow. How would that change your view of your life here and now? Do you seriously think it would not change anything at all? At the very least, one would have thought, borrowing that phrase of Johnson's, about a criminal being told he was to be executed in the morning, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. But what does this concentrated mind tell us? And for for that matter, how are we thinking of ourselves as we do this thinking? Are we tempted perhaps somehow to think of ourselves as actors in a drama we can somehow view as outsiders, a very odd concept? And here it's tempting to think of a literal image, namely a painting from the 19th century by Friedrich, his famous Wanderer über dem Nebelmeyer, his Wanderer above the sea of mist or cloud. In that painting, which has been described as part of the peripatetic tradition in literature and art, in other words, the tradition of walking, the solitary figure of the Wanderer stands at the peak of a craggy mountain, holding a walking stick. That's iconographically essential, and he takes in, apparently, the view before him. We see him from the back and placed exactly at the centre of the composition, at the apex of the pyramidal pyramidal summit, which thus comprises a triangular wedge directly in front of the viewer. That points, perhaps in a sense, heavenward. (coughs) These vertical dynamics are counterbalanced by the V-shaped symmetry of the faraway mountain slopes in the background, all of which has suggested to many some sort of dialogue between the wanderer and the great expanse of nature before him. In the words of one commentator, the motif of the mountain suggests man striving to reach a higher metaphysical world as the goal of his journey through life. It alludes to the romantic topos of life as a pilgrimage. And that in one way brings us back to the book of Ecclesiastes again, for there is an old tradition which has it that no less a person than King Solomon wrote first the Song of Songs with all its visionary romanticism in his youth, the book of Proverbs with its many aphorisms and injunctions in middle age, and the book of Ecclesiastes with all its dark negativity in his last years. That would certainly reflect a familiar pattern where life starts with a time of passionate worldliness, advances through middle years of prudent concern about one's place in the world, leading on to a period when one sees that the world has but vanities to offer. That's a recurring trajectory we can see going all the way back to St. Paul and even more clearly in that way in St. Augustine. And we find it too in the much later Anglican theologian and poet, John Donne. Of whom it has been said, his youthful indulgence in the dissipations of London culminated in his romantic but reckless marriage, which was followed by years of desperation on account of his consequent social exclusion, and then patient striving for advancement within the church, but concluded with the final melodrama of his funeral portrait and last sermon. That again resembles the pattern of Solomon, something which Dunn himself saw and was further reflected in his lifelong engagement with the book of Ecclesiastes. As one commentator wrote, vanity is the theme of Ecclesiastes and the cause of Dunn's attraction to the book. The vanity first and most simply of man, of Dunn himself, an awareness of his vanity overwhelmed him." during the years of aimlessness that followed his unfortunate marriage and the utter ruin of his hopes for courtly preferment at the beginning. Conscious of his abilities but unable to find direction in which to put them to use, Dunn came to think of himself as a mere nothing, as a vanity. The terms are synonymous and recur obsessively in the letters of that period that he wrote. And later on, Reviewing his career again in preparation for taking holy orders in the church. Dunn's prayer is that he may be delivered from vanity. And that brings us in the end by his lifelong engagement with Ecclesiastes to a key and distinctive note in Dunn as the doyen of metaphysical poets. And as this is in the words of one another commentator a preoccupation with the relatedness of things and ultimately the oneness of things. In this perspective, Dunne's poetry is characterized by a search for the means by which such seemingly opposed elements as the body and soul, male and female, the earthly and the divine, may be subsumed into a greater unity and beyond even that there is indeed an affirmation of an underlying metaphysic sustaining that coherence, however picturesque the imagery he presents may be. Hence, For example, the phrasing in his poem, The Second Anniversary, used to describe the unity between heaven and earth, effected by the flight of the soul in death, as he imagines it passing through the spheres of the planets. To quote, and as these stars were but so many beads, strung on one string, speed undistinguished leads, the soul through through those spheres, as through the beads of string. whose quick succession makes it still one thing, as doth the pith which least our bodies slack strings fast the little bones of neck and back. So by the soul doth death string heaven and earth. So it is that his work taken as a whole does more than merely wrestle with the challenges of Ecclesiastes at the level of artistic reflection. It does it as one might ultimately expect in a school of poetry called metaphysical, not merely to engage with the challenge, but to offer, or at least point to, the needed solution in terms of a metaphysic. This, in a sense, again, brings us back now to the wanderer painting, which can be understood in a great many different ways. But at a broad level, the main division of interpretation is between seeing it as inviting us into a deeper understanding of life humanity and our place in the great scheme of things which is indeed to predicate that there is such a scheme of things and ultimately I would argue therefore that we live in a theistic universe to which the explanatory power of the Christian understanding of redemption is uniquely adequate versus as an alternative one in which we stand contemplating a world before us that is of itself meaningless save perhaps for such meaning as we may from time to time be able to project upon it. But to understand that painting in this latter way is arguably to suppose that the Christian metaphysical tradition has itself played out to the point that it is, as one might say, exhausted. As Taylor, of course, elaborates in great lengths in great length in his discussion of secularism from which it would seem or could seem to follow that there could be no defence of belief in God in purely rational terms, exactly the perspective which our ever more aggressively secular world is all too keen to press upon us. And at that point we are confronted with another great divide. Must that conclusion place in irrecoverable crisis the intellectual legitimacy of religious and more specifically Christian belief Or is it possible, as many have argued Kierkegaard held, to defend a post-metaphysical conception of religious belief by reflecting rather on the place of religion in what might be called the spiritual economy of the life of the individual? A perspective that gets to the heart of what Kierkegaard meant by his initially rather disconcerting claim that the truth is subjectivity. I have occasion elsewhere to explore how we might best understand the kind of claim Kierkegaard wants to make more fully, and indeed embark even on this modest discussion with a degree of appropriate fear and trembling, given that we have one of the world's great experts on Kierkegaard here in the parish in the person of Father Hansen, whom I am confident will correct my various errors. Nonetheless, I would take it to be the case, prima facie, that for Kierkegaard There can be no proof of the existence of God and indeed that in consequence those who take themselves to be believers are badly fooling themselves in so far as they mistake a putative merely intellectual grasp of Christianity for the substance of it. When rather what is needful and indeed the only legitimate option is to insist that it is the incomprehensibility of God and the total indefensibility in purely rational terms of Christianity that is in fact central to the right understanding of it, paradoxical as that may seem. Thus it is in a certain rather powerful sense that reason must suffer a veritable crucifixion at the hands of Christianity. And it is just this form of suffering for which Kierkegaard uses the term passion which is the interior appropriation in actual defiance of mere rational justification of Christian faith. Hence it would seem even arguable for Kierkegaard that faith is all the greater to the extent that one understands that the external world not only does not provide any grounds for faith, but even makes, takes away any such grounds in terms of rational reasoning. For as he writes famously, Faith is precisely the contradiction between the infinite passion of the individual's inwardness and the objective uncertainty. If I wish to preserve myself in faith, I must constantly be intent upon holding fast the objective uncertainty. This brings us to the heart of his claim that truth actually is subjectivity. And for those of us who fall short of the Kierkegaardian ideal, it may be hard to do him justice with any brevity at this point but a central point must surely be that if one is concerned about the truth in an objective manner then one will look to the object to which the believer is related while if one's concern is for truth in its subjective sense then our attention needs to focus instead upon the nature of the individual's relationship by implication to the object of belief If only the mode of this relationship is in the truth, the individual is in the truth, even if he should happen to be related to what is not true. Famously complicated words there of Kierkegaard. But here Kierkegaard immediately adds that we are concerned with the essential truth and that only ethical and ethico religious knowledge has an essential relationship to the existence of the knower. All of which, entails that if a Christian intellectually assents to the propositions of Christianity, yet fails to have the passion of inwardness that even an idol worshipper has, it is the latter who bears more truth. Paradoxical again. Thus, Kierkegaard's conception of truth as subjectivity might seem to involve an apparent rejection of any specifically metaphysical claims concerning God's existence and there are those who firmly interpret it, there are there those who interpret him in that way and all this does seem to invite also a rather, on a rather colourful level the perhaps notorious idea that we can deduce it would be better to have the right attitude to the wrong God, which is to say the wrong object of faith even if it is an idol than the wrong attitude to the right one A point one might be tempted to suppose may have been in Pope Francis' mind when joining a ceremony in the Vatican in which devotees worshipped the figure of Pachamama. Pachamama being a goddess revered by the indigenous peoples of the Andes and in Inca mythology an earth mother, a fertility goddess who presides over planting and harvesting but also embodies mountains and causes earthquakes. Was the idea that worshipping the wrong goddess in the right spirit was better than the Christian alternative? Surely not. Or was it that the Pope took Pachimama to be some authentic expression of the one true God? We await the fullness of his explanation. But underlying all of this is an absolutely key point, for while it can clearly be held that Kierkegaard is arguing that it is not a sufficient condition of achieving Christian faith that one be related to the right object, a point on which he is surely correct, it is vital to add that Kierkegaard surely did not hold that it is not necessary to be related to the right object. In other words, contrary to some interpretations, Kierkegaard must have held that it is necessary but not sufficient that faith should repose, as it were, in the right object. And that brings us right back to where we started. For this life can seem in all its distractions, as the author of Ecclesiastes asserts, so much vanity. For the emphasis we can draw from Kierkegaard can help us to see the need for authentic commitment. Something pointed to in that overly powerful slogan, the, the overly familiar but powerful slogan, that purity of heart is to will one thing, which calls us, To the fullness of wholeheartedness in our commitment and in our specifically Christian commitment and by means of this to avoid what we could call the fragmentation of value with which the world will try to distract us in the busyness of life and it is precisely in seeing all of this that we come face to face with the urgency of the point made in the gospel which is to say we are inwardly disposed to submit ourselves to the salvation Christ alone has made available to us if we accept our inadequacy to achieve salvation unaided, something which the spirit of Kierkegaard is here commending, which is exactly the falsehood which the world of everyday distraction invites us to embrace, that we can somehow save ourselves or even live in a world that we don't need to be saved in for we must remember in the words of the gospel always, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Amen.